0: Today, those of you who are not here last Sunday, off on the Thanksgiving holiday, we welcome you back. Those of you who are visiting here, we are so glad you are here as well. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 11 once again as we continue through this series that we've been going through for a while now. <laughs> this is part 28. <clears throat> Picking up where we left off last week, we'll be starting at verse 7. So if you would all stand together with me as we receive the word of the Lord. Romans 11, verse 7, Paul says, What then? What Israel is seeking it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth that is contained in it. Lord, would you expose the deceitfulness of our own hearts in this, that we may submit ourselves to you in your truth, that we may be changed for your glory. God Jesus, would you be glorified in this? In your name we pray. Amen. For <clears throat> those of you who follow along in the sermon guide there in your bulletin, I'm going to give you the first point there right off the bat, and that is this God reveals Himself to us through His Word. It's important for us to understand that God reveals Himself to us through His Word. And it's very important to understand that that right there is the primary purpose of the Bible. If you want to know God and what He's about and what He is like and how He operates in our lives, if you want to know God, you have to know His Word. If you don't know His Word, you don't know God. Plain and simple. And what's sad is this current generation of church-going people in the United States that you and I belong to is probably the most biblically illiterate generation there has ever been. And what makes it especially troubling and ironic is that we're living in a time where God's Word has never been more easily accessible than it is now. Never before in the history of the United States or the history of the world for that matter has access to God's Word been so readily available. With technology now, all you have to do is basically push a button and you've got God's Word right there in the palm of your hand. That is unbelievable. Yet not very many people are taking advantage of that. Apparently there are things that we deem to be more important more interesting, more entertaining. The good news is that there, I believe there is somewhat of an awakening going on in the church right now that people are starting to get a greater hunger for truth. And because of that, they're starting to dig more into Scripture. There is a beginning to be a greater appreciation for solid biblical teaching and study But for the most part, there are things that people prioritize a lot higher than getting to know God through his word. And maybe that's part of the problem there. It could be that people just don't realize that that's what the purpose of the Bible is for and they're not using it for that purpose. Now, I think most people probably view the Bible as nothing more than an instruction manual on how we are to be more moral. They see the purpose purpose of it as being to tell people what to do and how to live better lives and how to uh, be more successful and blessed by God. And if that's what most people think, then I don't blame them for not being too interested in it. When you view the Bible that way, it can be easy to see it as a bunch of these uh, high expectations that you know that you're never going to meet. How discouraging is that? But that is not the primary purpose of the Bible. It is not to serve as just an instruction manual for us on how to live better. It does show us how inadequate we are at meeting certain things in here, but that's actually a good thing. Because in doing that, it points us to our need for Jesus says, you can't do this, I'll prove it to you, here's things to do, you can't do it, which shows that you need somebody to do it for you and points us right to Jesus. But the Bible is not about us, it is about God and how he reveals himself to man. And so if we read the Bible more as a way to get to know God and less as what we need to do and how it's all about us, then we may just find it a bit more interesting than we do now. I promise you, we'll at least find more life in it. And that's the problem with having a generation that is so biblically illiterate. It's not that they won't be able to do good at Bible trivia, it's that we won't know God. God. If we have a generation that doesn't know God's word, then we have a generation that doesn't know God very well. And maybe that right there is the the root cause of all the problems in our country that we are facing today. And if we don't get to know God through his word, then we are left to try to figure out what he's like on our own. And so we'll form a perception about him based on what other people tell us. And based on what we deem is right in our own eyes. And then what ultimately happens, inevitably, is that we make God into something that doesn't look anything like the God of the Bible. I had someone tell me pretty recently that they basically form their opinion about God based on what's in their heart. And they said it. You know, when they hear something about God that doesn't line up with or agree with their heart, then they just have a hard time believing in that. And that is very scary. Because Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart of man is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so why would you use something as deceitful as the heart to base your belief about God on? And if what Jeremiah says is true about our heart, then that means that what's in here most of the time is not going to line up with what's in here. I mean, if you have something that is more deceitful than anything else and something that is absolute truth, I mean, logically, those things are not going to be on the same page about things all the time. But our culture is so self-absorbed today that we tend to allow our own opinions and feelings to trump everything else, even if it's God's word. And so here's the question. If what's in your heart, what you feel, doesn't agree with or line up with what you come across in God's word, then which one are you going to go with? That's a question that every one of us are going to have to face the more we read the Bible. Look at what Hebrews 4:12 says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the what? the heart. What that tells me is that if I come across something in God's Word that doesn't line up with how I feel, what's in my heart, then something has just been exposed as not being right and needs to be corrected. Well, what is it? Is it my heart that needs to be corrected or is it God's Word that needs to be corrected? Obviously, it's my heart that needs to be corrected, but the way a lot of people live today, you would think... It was the other way around. And if you read the Bible as a way to get to know God more, you are going to come across some things in here from time to time that will force you to decide if God's Word really is the full and final authority on all matters. That's exactly what Hebrews 4.12 is talking about it changes us. It it exposes the deception that is in our heart. And then it transforms it if we will submit to that, if we will submit to the Word of God, trying to get our hearts to line up with the Word rather than trying to get the Word to line up with us. And sometimes that can be very difficult, but sometimes it can be absolutely exhilarating. The Holy Spirit will at times reveal things to us through his word that it might be hard to take at first and you'll have to wrestle with and and chew on for a while. But sometimes he may reveal something to you in his word that it excites you and is absolutely freeing. It just sets you free. From something, and so it can be exhilarating in that way. That's why I love reading and studying and digging into scripture because every time I do, I learn something about my heart that God wants to change, and I learn something more about God that I may not have known before, and both of those things just cause me to fall in love with Him more and more. God reveals Himself to us through His Word, and what He what is revealed about him in these verses that we just read is something that is very serious and weighty. I'm telling you right now, what he reveals about himself here is light years removed from the meaningless minutiae that is debated on talk radio. It is never mentioned or considered on television It is a whole other world away from entertainment. And it will never be something that you're going to hear debated in the political arena. And it won't ever be seen or heard in any manual on how to grow a church. I promise you that. But if it's true, then all these other things are affected by it. So please listen. Listen. And consider carefully the gravity and the seriousness of what God has chosen to reveal about himself to us in his word this morning. I fully get what Paul is saying here. We need to take it in the context of the verses that precede it. Paul is talking about the nation and the people of Israel as a whole. And in verse 5 that we looked at last week, he says there has come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice or a remnant chosen by grace. In other words, God has seen to it that out of all the people of Israel, some have believed on Jesus as Messiah and been made right with God. They are now free from sin and hell. And Paul stresses that God brought about this believing remnant according to his gracious choice. They were chosen by grace. The remnant was and is the remnant because God chose it to be the remnant. That's why it's there. And that choosing was by grace alone, not because of anything that the remnant did to warrant them being chosen. And Paul highlights that truth and really drives it home in verse 6 when he says, For if it is by grace, if this choice of the remnant is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. If we caused ourselves to be chosen, then you can't call it grace. I've mentioned several times now in this letter how up to this point, the people of Israel had always assumed that they were in good with God just because they were Israelites. They assumed that they were, quote, God's chosen people just because of their race or just because they followed the old covenant law. Earlier in the letter, Paul absolutely dropped a bombshell on them by informing them that this is a wrong assumption to make. That's not how you get in good with God. You get in through Christ alone. And here he's clarifying that even further by saying there's only going to be a remnant of us who are going to believe in Christ, and they are the only ones who are going to be getting in. Now you know this had to be absolutely breathtaking to the Jews in Rome who read this letter for the first time. And it must have left them asking, what are you saying, Paul? So what then are you saying about Israel as a whole? And this is where we are in verse 7. He says, what then? Or, what are you saying, Paul? And then he answers, what Israel is seeking it has not obtained in other words Israel as a whole has failed to live up to the law that they so zealously pursued they have failed at attaining righteousness in God's eyes and so they are cut off from salvation and then the next thing he says in verse 7 has is just absolutely huge And it is an incredibly important statement for understanding how salvation happens. The first part of the statement, he says, those who were chosen obtained it. Obtained what? Obtained righteousness. Obtained right standing with God. Obtained salvation through Jesus Christ. He's just reiterating what he said in verse 5, that there is a remnant chosen by grace. So the first part of this incredible statement is where Paul says those who were chosen obtained it. And then he says something next that I have to admit. As someone whose job it is to preach and to teach God's word, I could find myself very easily frustrated with Paul right now. And I come across this and part of me is going, come on, Paul, really? Because he says something that I might even be tempted to skip over and pretend that it's not there. Because he says something that I know some are going to take issue with. I mean, I've taken enough flack already from some of the things that I pointed out in chapters 9 and 10. I don't want to stir that up again. And you know what's really frustrating? Paul could have easily have said this a whole nother way. He could have written, the believers obtained it, but the rest refused to believe. And there would have been absolutely nothing wrong with him saying it that way. That is absolutely true. And how easy it would have been for him to do that. And part of me wishes that he would have because it would have avoided a lot of drama in my life. <laughs> He could just as easily have avoided an aspect of God, an important aspect of God, just like many people do today. But he didn't. And he wrote, those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Many translations say the elect obtained it. King James says that the rest were blinded. Regardless of what translation is used, there is no other way to interpret what Paul writes right there in anything other than what is clearly written. He could have said it a different way, but he intentionally describes God's activity in regards to salvation in a way that just isn't talked about in popular American Christianity which in many ways can be very different from biblical Christianity. Why? Why does he do this? I mean, why would the Holy Spirit have Paul write it this way when he could have easily said it in a way that had been a whole lot more easily digestible and definitely a whole lot more popular? I think I know why. God loves you. And it is good for you to see this and to know this and to make this a pillar of your faith. If you don't see this yet, that it is good for you to know this, then don't worry. You're not alone. It usually doesn't come immediately. And it took quite a while for me to finally submit to it after much wrestling and study. Like I told you before, there were some holes in this for me that I, I couldn't quite fill in. But I trusted that the Holy Spirit would fill them in if I would just simply submit to it because I could not deny that was, it was in His Word. And He has. Ever since then, He has. Some of us may see this brightly. Some may see it dimly. Some may see it with clarity and full understanding. Some may have submitted to it without fully grasping it yet. And this is one of those places in the Bible that I was talking about earlier that is going to force you to choose between the authority of God's Word and the understanding of your own heart. What does Proverbs 3, 5 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We should all believe it just because it's in God's word, and he loves us. Let's move on in the text here. Verse 8, he says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Paul's really combining two Old Testament verses here. In Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy nine four, And he quotes these texts to show that the part of Israel that God chose to harden in Paul's day is the fulfillment of what was prophesied by Moses and Isaiah. And again, he is showing that the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament have always been about the believing remnant rather than the nation as a whole. And then in verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Now he quotes Psalm 69, 22, and 23. So again, what was prophesied by David in Psalm 69 is fulfilled as unbelieving Israel. And these verses are interesting because Paul is describing what this hardening looks like in people. How it is displayed in the lives of those who have been hardened to the gospel. He says, their table, let their table become a snare and a trap. The table, of course, is where they eat, which represents the good things that we enjoy in life, like food. Their hardness of heart is seen in the way that they misuse the gifts of God and indulge in fleshly pleasures. These good things that are given by God for God become a trap because they treat those gifts as if they are given by them for them. The pleasure that they should feel in God is replaced by the pleasures that they find in God's things. And so their physical appetite for food and fun deadens their spiritual appetite and they lose all desire for God. And then verse 10 gives another result of a hardened heart. It says, Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. The reference to a bent back is a picture of carrying a heavy load. It's hard work being done. And this is almost the opposite of the table pleasures of verse 9. But that's exactly how we go back and forth when we are hardened to God. We express our idolatry by indulging in fleshly pleasures or by constructing a morality that makes our work and effort and not God's grace the basis of our life. So bend their backs forever means to give them up to their self-made, self-exalting, works-based religion. If you're following along in your notes, the two main indicators of a hardened heart are fleshly indulgence and works-based religion. Both of those are efforts to fulfill a desire that can only be filled in a relationship through Jesus Christ. You know, God God wired every human being on this planet for worship. We're going to worship something. We can't help it. It's what we were created to do. And if we aren't worshiping God, we're either going to worship the things of this world or our own effort and achievement. Or both. This hardening is spiritual numbness, blindness, deafness, and deadness. It's turning God-given gifts into God-replacing pleasures and turning God's law of grace into self-reliant labor. And then the last thing I want to point out here in this text is the basis for this hardening. The doctrine of election Makes us naturally wonder why. Why would God do that? And what basis does he use in determining who's chosen and who's not? Well, there are really two reasons for the hardening. And this goes back to the paradox that we learned about in chapter 10 a few weeks ago. The basis for God's hardening must be described in two ways. One is to stress the freedom of God's choice to do whatever it is that he decides to do. And the other is to stress the guilt and accountability of man. Like I said before, don't assume that if one of those is true, then it negates the other and the other can't be true. No, that's wrong. They're both true because they're both found all throughout the Scripture. Let me briefly talk about these two before we end. Last week we learned that God's grace being bestowed on us has absolutely nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with God. There is nothing in us, there is nothing we can do that would warrant him choosing us for salvation. Like Paul said in verse 5, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Well, the same thing can be said of those who are hardened. The ones who God hardens aren't passed over because they are worse, and the ones he chooses aren't aren't chosen because they are any better. Both of those actions by God have everything to do with the fact that he is not constrained by any act or any condition of man outside of himself. We saw this back in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 9, where God himself says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, it does not, um, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That is the first thing we must say about the basis of this hardening. So in your notes, it is that God is not constrained by human will. He does what he chooses to do because he is God and he can. We do not provide the ultimate and decisive causes for the actions of God. He does. But just as important is the second way of describing the basis of this hardening. Look at one important word back in verse 9. It says, A stumbling block and a retribution to them. The word retribution implies the punishment of a wrong is involved. And so the point is, they deserved what they got. They are accountable for that. So the second basis for the hardening is that it is deserved. There are consequences for our actions. And this is what we find in the Bible, both that God is sovereign And that man is a responsible moral agent. That God is free to do whatever he chooses to do. And that there are consequences for our actions. Folks, every one of us deserve to not be chosen. If you don't understand that, you don't understand your condition apart from Christ. If you think that you deserved to be saved... You do not understand God's grace. Nobody deserves to be chosen. Everybody deserves not to be. So for God to choose some means that he has gone above and beyond any requirement of what we would deem to be fair. So to say that it's not fair that God would choose some and not choose others, well then you're saying that those who are not chosen deserve to be chosen. They don't. And neither did you. And it is only by God's grace that you were. And that truth alone should kill any ounce of pride that tries to rear its ugly head in us. I believe that is one of the most humbling truths in all of Scripture. God's unwarranted, unmerited, undeserving grace. Grace. So in closing, what do we do with this? What does this doctrine of election mean for us? It means that we believe Him, we trust Him, we treasure Him. In your notes, the application for those who are chosen means that we should be the most humble, the most patient, the most kind, the most loving, the most forgiving, the most courageous people on earth. That's what that means. God has made us his own. And it was grace alone that did it. May we be sure that we are chosen by the way that we love God and the way that we love others. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for meeting here with us this day, God. Lord, your presence has been felt in this room, God, ever since we first got here. And Lord, I thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to come right now and just, like I said before, open our eyes. God, you are too big for us. Your ways are so far beyond us. God, you even say in your word that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, but they are so much higher than ours that our finite little puny minds cannot grasp even a fraction of you. Lord, we need your power and your help to be able to do that. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do that right now you give understanding to things that we are incapable of understanding in our own strength, our own ability. And God, I pray that your unmerited grace right now would hit somebody so hard in this place. That it finally clicks. And whatever they're going through right now, God, I pray that your grace for someone in here. Would cause them to rise above their circumstance. Somebody who's had their eyes on their surroundings. And they're scared or they're angry or they're fearful. Lord I pray that your unbelievable grace would just lift them above that. And they're able to see you for who you are. God I pray for those who maybe have been hardened to you. And your word has revealed that this morning, God, but they don't want to be that way any longer. Lord, I pray that your grace would just capture their hearts right now and that you would transform them and bring them into your family for eternity. Lord, let this morning be a defining moment in their life for eternity. Lord, I know there are needs all over this building. So I'm asking you, God, to just... Use this time as an opportunity to minister to those needs. Lord, help us be the ones that just minister to one another by your leading and your power. God, you are so good. We are so undeserving of you. And there are no words in our vocabulary, God, that can adequately express our gratitude and thanks. We cannot thank you enough for your grace and your mercy and your salvation. Lord, we ask you to just receive the little that we can give, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As always, we're going to spend the remainder of the time just worshiping the Lord a little bit more in song. And it's a time for ministry. For those of you who may need prayer for something, it may be something that has absolutely nothing to do with this message. Maybe it's something you're going through, something in your physical body that you want prayer for healing for, whatever it is. Some of the leaders of our church and their wives the spouses will be down here on these front rows if you want one of them to pray with you. If there's something that God is speaking to you through this message today, come tell me about it. I'll pray with you. If you're having a hard time with something, man, we'll, we'll go to God with that. Let's just be sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit and allow Him to do what He wants to do among us. As we do that, let's all stand as we worship Him. It's got to be seated for just a minute as we take part in communion together before we dismiss this morning. We don't require you to be a member of Evangelistic Temple to be able to take communion together. We do say that, I mean, in reality, in order to take communion, you should be a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ because that's what you're doing. That's what you're declaring by doing that. So part of the family of God, you're more than welcome to partake in communion with us. Thank you.